Hey, good morning, everybody. Happy 4th of July. Good morning. Woo, woo, woo. All right. Hey, we are in uh, Philippians chapter 4, and we're at the end of the book of Philippians. It's the last sermon uh, that we're going to have for a while in Philippians. So if you'll turn to your Bibles, chapter 4. Uh, and before we read it, um, this is really an exciting way to end the book because um, right here at the very end of the book, Paul is saying to us that he has a secret that he wants to reveal to us, that there is a secret that not only does he want us to have, but it's significant to the quality of the way that we're going to live our lives. And I don't know about you, but I love, I love secrets. If somebody said to me, hey, I got a secret, um, I got the secret to weight loss. I'm like, I'm all in, yes, please, unless it's late night television. Or the secret to how to make a lot of money, or the secret to how to make your relationships the best they could possibly be, or the secrets to raising children that are smart and wise and always come to you and say, yes, mother, please give me your wisdom. I would want more, yes, give me that secret. But Paul, right here at the end of the book of Philippians, is saying that he has learned the secret of contentment. He's learned the secret of contentment, that what he's actually about to unfold for us is the secret for us to live very content lives. And let's just think about that for a minute. Imagine the impact on your relationships, on your work, on you personally, if you learned how to live out of deep, profound contentment. And if we understand what contentment means, this whole definition for contentment is, the way I'm using it is, and I think Paul's using it this way, it's, it's happy, but it's more than happy that contentment is this idea of being satisfied. Uh, if you've ever sat down at your Thanksgiving uh, dinner table and you've eaten as much as you can eat, like Joey and friends, you know, he brought his Thanksgiving pants to, you know what I'm talking about, the stretchy pants, that he came and he ate all that he could eat, and when he pushed away from the table, he says, I have no need for anything else. I am completely satisfied. That's contentment. And Paul is saying that he's learned how to be content in plenty and in want. So really? Are we really about to talk about this? And we're going to run through it. So I need you have got a pen, take notes, because I want to tell you that some of us think that what what it means to be content is to be completely satisfied and life has nothing that you want. This whole idea that no matter what comes my way, I, I am just in this tranquil place of absolute deep peace. So we had a friend whose house burned down a few years back and he lost everything. He lost his family mementos, all the things he inherited from his grandparents and his parents, all his photos and everything. Could you imagine standing next to him as the fire is blazing and looking at him and going, hey, bro, be content. Like, he'd probably punch you in the face if you did that. Like, that's just not real. In fact, we're not, we're not teaching today that I want you to go into this state of Zen Buddhism because Buddhism says that the only way that we experience suffering is because it comes from desires. And if you can eliminate desires, then you can eliminate all suffering. So what you need to eradicate from your life is desiring anything. And if you have no desires, then when you have nothing, no matter what comes to your life, you are content and satisfied. That is not Christianity. 
Christ says in Psalms, he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. In fact, Christ sets aflame your desires. So how do we have these burning, raging desires and live in this place of contentment? What's the secret? So, Kristen, would you like to come and read for us? This is, uh, this is Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10, and she'll read through verse 20. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, thank you for your word, and we thank you for the chance to pause for a moment this week and consider it in such a profound uh, day as this. And Lord, lead us in your truth and uh, maybe give us insight. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So just a little background perspective. So Paul had planted the church in Philippi, and it had been four years since this church had seen Paul. And they were actually concerned about him because they didn't know what was going on. They got a report that he was actually in prison in Rome. And not only was he in prison, but he was also in need. Because at that time, if you were in prison, your friends and your family actually had to take care of your needs. And he didn't even have enough to buy himself a cloak to kind of keep himself warm at night or during the winter. They became so concerned, they took up a collection because they believed in the ministry of the Paul. They wanted to partner in Paul's ministry. They took up this huge collection and then they gave it to Epaphroditus and said, go take it to Paul, which was 800 miles away. So he traveled for months to get to Paul. And remember, we talked about this. He nearly died on the way. So this was not just a display of generosity. This was a display of extraordinary generosity at the risk of people's lives. And in the midst of this, listen to what Paul says. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it because you didn't know where I was. I'm not, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstance. Wait, let me get that last part to you. I'm not saying thank you because I needed it. I was content before you ever showed up with Epaphroditus. Like, what? 
Like, it almost sounds like Paul's saying, hey, man, I really appreciate y'all showing your love for me. But to be honest with you, I really don't need it. Is that what he's saying? Is he really kind of giving this snobby kind of answer to people, to especially Epaphroditus, who nearly died trying to bring this money to him? I don't think that's what he's doing. What Paul is displaying for us is something that's profound for us, which is the root of great contentment. And what is the secret of contentment? Look at verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want you to know that may be the most churchy answer I've ever heard. <laughs> what makes you content? Well, brothers, I can do all things through. What does that mean? Like, I, I'm not even sure that many of us even know what he's talking about here. Because, and if that's true, if there's a secret in that, what does that mean and how do I get there? Because it doesn't feel like I'm in the room of that a lot of times. Well, let's just pause. Remember what the gospel is. The gospel is, is that we have been separated from God by sin. The sin of our forefathers, Adam, the sins of your grandparents, the sins of your parents, and also your own sins. All of these have become barriers between us having a vibrant, alive, real life with God. And God said he wasn't content with this barrier being between us. And so he sent his son Christ, even though we had committed crimes against the high court of heaven, Christ went to the cross to pay for our crimes. He said, I'll pay the penalty that they cannot pay so that the penalty is now lifted, which happened at the cross. And then at the resurrection, we were forgiven at the cross, but in the resurrection, not only are we now brought to newness of life, but we have been infused now with the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does when he comes to dwell in your heart is gives you strength. Not just strength, he gives you strength for everything God's calling you to do. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, to get there, we're gonna, we're gonna travel fast now. You ready? Okay, we're, we're gonna hit the accelerator because the first thing I have to get you to realize is that, that many of us live our lives in a very small view. And the way we live our lives, we view ourselves this way, we view our circumstances this way, we view our relationships this way. And what we do is we tend to set our eyes on what we can see. And so when we do that, what we're looking at is very temporary things. And scripture even challenges, don't set your eyes on what you can see, set your eyes on what you can't see. Because what you can see is temporary, but what you can't see is eternal. So the first step to get into that room of contentment, which is based in Christ gives me strength in all things, is I have to lift my head up from what is seen to what is unseen. I have to begin the journey of viewing myself differently. I have to continue the journey of viewing this differently. Like, you know, here it is, 4th of July. A lot of our people are gone, they're traveling, and they didn't take us with them. It's very sad. I want to go to the beach. Don't you want to go to the beach? Until you get to, yeah, until you get to the beach and then you realize, I don't want to be here. Like, I would be content if I could just go to 30A for a week. And then you get to 30A and you're like, I'm not content. I would be content if my children went back to Nashville and I could stay at 30A for a week. Mm. Let's be honest. If you take your little children on vacation, I'm not sure it's a vacation. You need a vacation from your vacation. That's the secret of contentment. Somebody close us in prayer. <laughs> so how do I set my eyes on what is unseen so that I can begin to live out of the strength that is mine in Christ? 
So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you three things, okay? The first is that we become rejoicers. The second is that we become people that, uh, let me make sure I got it right, that we're rejoicers, that we become people that want what we have, and finally we become boasters. All right, here we go. We're gonna cover this in 15 minutes, and then I'm gonna charge you to go be content. The first is that we become rejoicers. And Paul says it many times in the book of Philippians that we rejoice in every situation. In other words, Paul is saying that we don't demand that life give us what we think we need for contentment. We actually find contentment and then we bring that into life. We're the ones that actually know that our contentment is not tied to our circumstances and our situation. We know that our contentment is anchored in something much deeper than what may be happening today or what happened yesterday or what could possibly happen tomorrow or what may never happen tomorrow. And so first thing I do is I rejoice. And what am I rejoicing in? And here, here's the crazy thing is when I'm rejoicing, I'm practicing something by faith. And what I'm practicing in is telling my heart and my head what is most true. And what is most true is that the doctrine of God's providence is true. You're like, wow, the doctrine of God's providence. I spent all day yesterday thinking about that. Well, let me, can I be pretty heady here and read for you? This is the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is one of our confessions that is the foundation and the bedrock of our theology here at Midtown. It says, God, the great creator of all things, he upholds, directs, disposes and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least. He exercises this most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, his power, his justice, his goodness, and his mercy. What does that mean? God is in control. There is nothing outside of God's control. Nothing, zero. In fact, in Romans chapter eight, it gives us a picture of what God's doing with that power and that control. For we know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That God in his infinite wisdom and all his power and justice is leveraging the power of who he is for his good, for his glory, and his glory is always good for us. You tracking with me? The first thing I'm doing is when I'm rejoicing is I'm realizing that God's not a clockmaker. He didn't make the world and then wind it up and then step back and lean over to the Holy Spirit and say, watch this, and remove himself completely from the process. No, God is intimately involved. Even Jesus talked about in the book of John that God is always working and God continues to work, and he's actively, providentially working in your life and all around your life in every circumstance. In Proverbs chapter 16, it says in verse nine, the heart of man, he plans his course, but the Lord establishes his steps. In other words, the Lord uses all the things that you do, you say, the things you do right, the things you do wrong, all to direct the course of his will for you and for this world. That's why when Joseph, remember the story of Joseph and his brothers who had thrown him into slavery and he was completely abused and human trafficked and all of this, and at the end of this story, his brothers come before him, he's working for Pharaoh, and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Even your evil actions 
were providentially used by God for his glory for my good. Rejoicing allows me to bring into real time that God is in control. Do you know that in Psalm 139 that God is so providentially in control of your life? He says in verse 13, for he created you. Your most innermost being, he knit you together in your mother's womb. It even says that God's eyes saw your unformed body all the days ordained for him, for you were written in his book before even one of them came to be that before you were even created before the creation of the world, God knew you and shaped you and knew his intent for you. So I was hiking in Percy Warner Park yesterday. And you know, when I say hiking, you know, that's where you're kind of cussing as you're going up the hills, you know, which cussing is okay. It's the lowest form of prayer. And uh, so I'm going up these hills and uh, I hear something behind me and uh and I'm struggling up a steep hill, and this young six foot four pencil thin guy comes just bounding like a gazelle up to the top of that hill. And as he's passing me, I'm like, Lord, why didn't you make me six foot five? Like I could look at that and really become envious of going, wait a minute. And God said, I made you the way you are for a purpose. I've made you look the way you look for a purpose. I've given you gifts for a purpose. I've not given you gifts for a purpose. I've given you your parents for a purpose. I've given you your limits. Do you know that God has given you physical limits? Do you know that God has given you mental limits? Do you know that God is not giving you everything that everybody on the world has? And those limits are God's grace, his providential grace to equip you specifically for the purpose that he made you. In Ephesians it says that we are God's poetry that we are God's handiwork, created for works that were prepared ahead of time providentially for you to walk into. When I begin to rejoice, then I begin to put down the curses and I start picking up God's providential design for my life and everything that's happening in my life. Everything. See, I don't know if I'll always understand what's going on, especially when suffering comes our way. But I can always say that I know what it's not happening, that God's not abandoned me. God has not turned his back on me. God has not changed his providential design for my good. God is still working out what's good for his glory, and his glory is always good for me. So when I'm rejoicing, I'm bringing myself back into the right sane mind. I'm setting my eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Are you with me? So I'm rejoicing. The second thing I'm doing is simple. Want what you have. You know that scripture says he's given you everything you need for God, life and godliness? Everything. Which means what you don't have, you don't need. He's actually limited your capacity to have something. And when I say to God, no, and I say, I don't want this, I want that. I don't want what I have, I want what they have. It actually begins to blind me to the power of what I have. And God is saying, when you rejoice in me, also want what you have in you. So uh, I was talking to Emily Blackledge this week. She runs African Leadership, which is a ministry that Midtown's been a part of for a long, long time. And they equip pastors in Africa 
They don't just equip them to lead churches and train them in the word of God and theology and preaching. They also train them to be community developers. And they've been influenced, like many of us have, from the book that, uh, what is it, Emily? It's When Helping Hurts, that this was two guys out of Chattanooga, are they? Corbin and uh, Fickert, is that his name? That they've written this book on how when we pour endless resources into underdeveloped countries, what begins to happen is those communities begin to start putting their dependency upon the communities that have more than they have. In other words, they start looking outside themselves for the answers for the problems that are happening inside themselves. And one of the first things that they do with African leadership and community development is they teach leaders how to do asset mapping. And asset mapping is this process to where they pause and they take a deep breath and they start saying, what are the assets we have? Let's take our eyes off America. Let's put our eyes on us. What buildings do we have? What space do we have? What gifts do we have? What people do we have? And they start collecting a whole list of what are the assets that help us make a difference in our own community. You see this a lot. I don't know if you guys have read much about urban farming. We've been involved in urban farming for quite a while, for the last four years. And there are people that are doing amazing stuff in LA and places like Boston where they did asset mapping in saying we're a food desert. How do we get food into our neighborhood? And many of the leaders of those communities said, you know how we do it? There's an empty lot there, there's an empty lot there, there's an empty lot there. What a great asset that there's an empty lot right over there. Even in LA, there are some organizations that are recognizing that the medium in the middle of the road, like the medium when you come to an intersection is like a five by five square box of dirt. And they've started planting gardens. And they're starting planting community gardens. They, they asset map and they said, We're not at a disadvantage, we're at an advantage if we could stop wanting what everybody else has and start looking at what we have that empowers us then to be what God is calling us to be. Are you asset mapping your own life? Because if you'll you'll rejoice, God is providentially designed, you're right where you need to be. You have everything that you need. You have him. And then I stop. I stop wanting what I don't have and I start wanting what I do have. My struggles, my relationship struggles, my financial struggles, my limitations mentally, my limitations professionally, my, my limitations whatever. That this is, okay, I want this. If you'll do those two things and then you do the final third thing, it walks us into that room. Remember, with the secret of contentment, you're all gonna be content when you leave here. Boast in your struggles. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That should terrify you. That Paul is saying God's power, his providential power, he's given me everything I need for life and godliness, is perfected in my weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in babies crying, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, guess what? Thank you, God, for kids in this room. We are strong. When I know that I'm weak and I'm struggling, and I know where I'm weak and I'm struggling, 
guess what happens? Now I know where I need the strength of God in my life. And most of us don't have a clue where we need the strength of God in our lives. We have learned how to live life without God so much, we never enter into the room of contentment because we never need to enter into the room of contentment to go, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But when I know where I really need God, when I know I'm rejoicing in his providential hand, when I know, man, Lord, I want what you've given me because even my limits are my gift to actually be able to boast in your strength because you don't want me to live out of my strength. You want me to live out of your strength because you want me to live a supernatural life, a wholehearted life, a full life, and that's what you're pushing me to. And I'm constantly trying to live my life without God. Come on Sunday morning, give you a nod, and then go off and live my life. And God says, no, your life is supernatural. You have a purpose, a divine purpose for your life. And Paul says, I boast. So I don't know if you know Stan and Alice Weber. Back in 1985, Stan and Alice Weber moved to the Edge Hill community. And at that time, Edge Hill community was, it was all African-American, it's predominantly poor, and they'd been spending time in Jackson, Mississippi with a guy named John Perkins, who, if you want to see a beautiful example of community development and also a beautiful example of gospel justice, go read Let, Let Justice Roll Down. It's a beautiful work where they did community development in the inner city of Jackson. And anyway, Perkins is just a big hero of mine. And they came here with, that they were going to bring a ministry of renewal to the Edge Hill community. And they, uh, they started Sal- Salama. If you've ever heard of Salama ministry, it's been going, it's strong. It's really, they have uh, amazing after-school programs. They do summer programs, community renewal. But at the beginning, when they moved into 15th Avenue, all their neighbors were very suspicious. But Alice and Stan had this great aspiration that we've got so much to bring to this community, that we're, we're gonna just help change this community. And none of the neighbors really wanted their change. <laughs> Well, Stan uh, realized they'd bought an old house and he needed to paint it, so he had, he had bought one of those heat guns that melts the paint so you can scrape it. I've never done this. Stan should have never done this because he caught his house on fire. And he's standing back and his house is on fire and the neighbors see what a pathetic painter he is that he set his own house on fire. They came over and helped put out the fire. And here's what happened. This is how Salama started. They put their arms around Stan and they said, hey, thanks for moving here. We can see that you really need us. <laughs> you see what I'm saying is his weakness, his vulnerability. And let me tell you, when I'm weak, here's what it does. It opens me to two things. It opens me to need the Lord and it opens me to need you. And the sin in your life resists both those things. In fact, in Psalm 81, our elders, this is a psalm we run to all the time. God says, open your mouth and I will fill it. And my sin against God is I refuse to open my mouth to you. Because the way you're gonna fill it is probably with the people in this room and the people in my life. And my pride, I'm in control. I will go and get what I want. And I will not boast in my weakness. I want the world to boast in my strength. Will not allow me to open my mouth to you. And so it never allows me to walk into the room of contentment that my God is in control. He has a divine purpose for my life. 
so much so that now I, I want what I got. And I'm actually saying to the Lord, I boast in my weaknesses because this is where you're going to show up. So I'm just going to ask you, we're out of time, and we're going to sing some songs now. We're, I'm going to give you a time of repentance because if you're like me, uh, your lack of contentment has very little to do with God and has everything to do with you. So let's pray. Father, will you forgive us when we are not living the content life you called us into because we refuse to rejoice? Lord, would you forgive us when we refuse to put our faith in your providential hand? Will you forgive us, Father, when we rail against you and tell you we don't want what we have? I want what other people have. Would you forgive us, Father, where our coveting makes us blind even to the assets you've given us, the friendships, the relationships, the gifts that we do have? Will you forgive us, Father, when we absolutely refuse to acknowledge our weakness and our lives become about us moving from strength to strength rather than moving into your strength? Would you forgive us, Father, for how we often despise our need for other people and refuse it? How we love the position of power when people need us, but we disdain the position of weakness when we need others. Forgive us for that, Father, and forgive us for where we refuse to humble ourselves and live in constant need of you. I thank you, Father, that in our repentance, we're not getting fresh forgiveness, that Jesus, you said it's finished on the cross, that we are forgiven for our past, our present, and even our future sins. But Lord, I thank you that repentance is returning back to sanity. It's returning back to the place where peace now guides our steps, where joy actually enters into our lives and is a welcome guest, where happiness is the air that we breathe and satisfaction now marries itself with the desires of our hearts and allows us to run, accelerate, and thrive as fully alive humans and this new humanity of people that have been transformed by Jesus. In Christ's name we pray.